So if you guys have a need for a Bible, why don't you raise your hand? We have some ushers that would love to get your Bible. We're going to jump into Scripture now. Let's go. So we've been in a series on Sunday mornings going through the book of Acts. We've been in the book of Acts for a lengthy amount of time, and we have... Uh, we're coming to the end of it right now, and we will finish up the book uh, by the end of the year. I promise you that. And uh, what, we're gonna, what we started doing last week was kind of a three-week series. Um, every once in a while, I mentioned this last week, um, the leaders of our church, we kind of asked questions, what would be really important, what are uh, key messages that are uh, beyond the narrative of maybe the teaching series that we might be going through that we are sensing God wants to speak to our community. And so every year, we kind of do like a vision type of a series, like who we are, how we see ourselves fulfilling what God's called us to do and be within the church community at large. And that's kind of where we're at right now. So we're in this like three-week series. Uh, that was week two. Next week will be week three. Then we'll be done. We'll get back in the book of Acts, and we'll kind of re- uh, finish that up to the, towards the end of the year. Um, but today, what we're looking at really is the subject that we started last week, which is the passage, kind of building off of that, where Jesus says, um, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. We kind of unpacked what it meant for Jesus to build his church. And so we're going to continue on that theme. Um, I like to think of it this way in terms of a segue to think about bigger, broader picture. That Jesus is actually building a community of people uh, unto himself. So when Jesus saves us, he doesn't just bring us to himself. But by bringing us to himself, he also brings us to those others to whom he's saved unto himself. So in other words, uh, think of it this way. Uh, growing towards Jesus also means growing towards others. All right, say it again. Growing towards Jesus also means growing towards others. So some of you may have heard that Christianity is really about you and a personal relationship with Jesus, period. That's not untrue, but it's not the full truth. Uh, growing in Jesus is not privatized experience uh, that you have with God. It does involve something of that element, but it's beyond that, far beyond that, because salvation, being a part of a relationship in the family of God, involves having others that we would call brothers and sisters, people that you don't get to choose, by the way, uh, people that are part of your family, some you get along with, some you cannot stand, but they are your brothers and sisters, Um, And what I want to try to present to you this morning as we are thinking about this is um, how this plays out into your personal walk with Jesus. In other words, if you're going to grow as a follower of Jesus, you have to wrestle with this. You cannot circumvent it. You cannot throw it away. You cannot ignore it. You can't sweep it under the rug. You, You have to address how you respond and relate to others around you because your spiritual development and growth are, are linked to that reality. So uh, before I jump in, I want to say basically there's been three goals that we've been trying to outline that, we've been, uh, that we as a church are committed to. And there's a reason why that we as a church are committed to these things. It's not because we gather as a leadership core. We're like, what are great ways to strategize and build a church? It's not what we've done. It's not what we've ever done. We've always gathered around like, okay, what is God up to? What does scripture teach? How has God begun to do this thing 2,000 years ago? How has this historically, traditionally happened throughout the church history? So in other words, we're not sitting around trying to be innovative. We're just trying to rediscover like what has already happened and what is God already doing. So there's three things that we can look at 
and basically affirm and say that this is what God has always been up to from the very beginning, these three things. Number one, we would say gathering together for worship and training. So we gather together. Sunday, we do it on Sundays. The reason why we do it on Sundays is because it's a way of celebrating the first day of the week, which is also a way of celebrating the first day in which Jesus rose from the dead. So we are, by definition, as Christians or followers of Jesus, we are resurrection people. We and our lives are linked to this event that happened on the third day. Jesus rose again from the dead. Our lives are connected to that storyline. So we celebrate. We come together with a group of other people on Sundays. We looked at that more last week. And we gather together for the purpose of worship, singing together, uh, listening to music, good music, and play and sing according to that. We do communion together as a church family. We uh, allow scripture to instruct and teach us and be communicated to us by those whom God has appointed to be part of this church community. So that is part of it, but it's not the entire part of it. Because the other part is that we grow together in community. That's what we'll look at today, so we won't talk any more about that. Thirdly, we'll look at this next week, which is going together into the world to embody the mission of God. And again, we'll unpack more of what that looks like next week. So number one, gathering together for worship and training. Number two, growing together in community. Number three, going together into the world to embody this, this mission of what God has called us to. Those, those are three things that we, as a church, we affirm in Scripture. We say, this is what God's been doing. This is what we want to partner with God and be a part of in this world, in this community, in this church, more specifically. And uh, we, we hope that you guys would too as well. We hope that you would see this as a narrative that God calls us into, and at the same time, your heart would have this overwhelming stamp of yes and amen, that you would say, yes, I want in on that. So with that being said, let's jump in and begin to take a look at what we will be teaching on today. I'm going to break this down, basically. We're going to be looking at a lot of different passages. Primarily, we'll be looking at the book of Matthew and some passages out of the book of Acts. So just get ready for that. I'll kind of give you some titles or headers of what and how I'll be breaking this down. So just think about this in your mind. Number one, we'll take a look at the subject of this crisis of community. Uh, community sounds all amazing and everything, but the reality is, is that there's something very problematic about crisis. There's a crisis right now in terms of community at large in our world, in our society, and I would even say uh, by reflection in the church. So we'll look at the crisis of community. Secondly, we'll take a look at Jesus' call to community. Thirdly, we'll take a look at how community is ultimately cultivated. So if you think of community as being this fragile thing that can very easily be disrupted or ruined or fallen apart, how do we cultivate this, this really fragile thing so that it becomes robust and life-giving and beautiful? And uh, next, we'll kind of move into how we as a church community seek to embody community. Uh, second, uh, second to last, we'll take a look at a testimony of community. I'm going to have a friend of mine come on up. She will actually share with you a little bit about her story of community in this church and how it's been transforming her life. And finally, we'll end with a symbol of community. We'll explain that in a moment. So let's jump in and take a look at, first of all, this crisis of community. So to begin with, let me pray first, and we'll jump right into the statistics, and then we'll jump into Scripture. So why don't you join me as we pray? Father, we, uh, we come before you, and we just we humble ourselves before you and just say, God, we, we want you to speak to us. We want to have ears to hear. We trust and believe um, God, you use imperfect 
people and instruments to do this. So God, right now use me as imperfect and as broken and as dysfunctional as I can and am. But God, use me to speak forth what you have to say to our hearts. God, I pray for all of us here this morning that we would have ears that are able to hear, eyes that are able to see. God, I pray that the soil of our heart would be uh, tended to and able to receive your word that brings life. So God, transform us and change us. Reshape us, God, in the image of Jesus. Help us, God, to learn how to do this life of following you rightly within the context of other people uh, that can oftentimes be very challenging and maybe in some ways uh, frustrating and hurtful to us. God, help us to learn how to do that well. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. We all said, amen. So let's first of all jump in and take a look at this crisis of community. So there's a guy by the name of George Barna. Some of you may have heard of him. He's kind of like this well-known like uh, statistic guy within the Christian world, and he does all these stats and whatnot. And uh, one of the things that he discovered was, um, on a positive note, that out of uh, set, out of uh, you know uh, practicing Christians, people that would say, "I follow Jesus." Um, I am committed to Christ, I go to church, I'm in a Bible study. He said that 77% of practicing Christians that have been polled believe that it's really important to see growth in their spiritual life. So that's, that's positive. Um, the flip side of that, he says that 37% of non-practicing Christians, meaning people that don't go to church on a regular basis, whatever, he says 37% they think it's important. So what he's noticed is that there's this overwhelming consensus that, yeah, it's, it's important, growth. Spiritual growth is important. Growing in the way of Jesus is an important thing. And I think probably if we were to pull out of you guys and say, how many of you think it's important for you to be spiritually growing? In other words, every year, every six months, whatever, there should be some measurable elements of which you are growing. I think probably overwhelming majority of us would be like, yeah, this, that sounds legit, sounds good. Um, one of the things that he goes on to describe is the question, what's the preferred method of growth? So he breaks it down in three groups. Number one is on my own. Another two is with a group, like a small group, community group. Um, number three is like one-on-one. This is kind of like meeting with your mentor or spiritual, you know, formation person, whoever that's in your life, someone that you look up to, maybe your grandma or a Bible study leader. You one-on-one, you hang out with them at Starbucks or co- uh, coffee place, and you talk about Jesus and you talk about your life and so on and so forth, one-on-one. One of the things that he discovered in this is kind of a shocking and overwhelming poll is that 38% of those people that were uh, asked about the importance of spiritual growth, they said that they would prefer to do spiritual transformation on their own. That's their preferred method of actually becoming more of a committed disciple of Jesus Christ, doing it on my own. That's, that's kind of a shocking reality, and here's why. He goes on to say, one of the problems that was revealed is that millions of Christians believe that discipleship is a solo affair and only personal, with only personal and private implications. There does not seem to be much emphasis about the communal, relational nature of spiritual growth. So what he's tapping into is something that's really, really essential. And part of this, I think, is reflective upon culture at large. We're a very independent culture. There's a tendency for us to just want to do things on our own. And I would even say, add to that, a Christian idea that is deeply personal, like I tapped into a little bit earlier, that the way that we typically think of Christianity is a personal relationship with Jesus alone, that I don't 
need to be with anybody else. I can download podcasts on iTunes. I can listen to sermons on a website. I don't need to go be with a bunch of people that have a lot of baggage and are probably problematic. And if you are, by nature, someone that is like, uh, you don't like being around a lot of people, you're an introvert, um, you are not the type of person that gets your battery charged by hanging out with a lot of people. I'm not that person, by the way. I, I, I prefer on my days off to not have to talk to any of y'all. I love you. Uh, I've been part of this church for a long time, but I am not a people person. Like, some of that might be shocking for some of you. I'm a total guy that I can spend a lot of time just by myself with a book, going for a long walk, not having to talk to anybody. Like, like when people talk about isolation, that's my natural tendency is to just simply isolate. I do have people in my life that I'm deeply committed to in relationship and whatnot, but I have to work at it. But here's the point. I think there's a lot of Christians that think that I can just do the Christian life, become transformed apart from anybody else solo. And, and what I would suggest to you is that is uh, a method that reflects culture and not scripture. So that's how you think of this. Um, what I would hope to encourage you to at least do today is to rethink that. To allow your false concepts to be challenged. Hopefully to allow them to be replaced by a scriptural pattern of how this whole thing works out. So um, there is a gal by the name of uh, Sherry Turkle. Some of you may be familiar with her. She did a TED Talk that's kind of like the most popular TED Talk in, in all their history. Um, she is kind of a researcher on the whole idea of social marketing, social networking, I should say, and uh, how that relates to society at large. She had this to say. It's kind of a fascinating quote. She says this, We are lonely but fearful of intimacy. Digital connections may offer the illusion of companionship without the demands of Friendship. Our networked life allows us to hide from each other even as we are tethered to each other. We'd rather text than talk. And so this idea is that more so than ever in history, we are connected more than ever before by way of social media, Facebook, Instagram, whatever. We are more connected than ever before. In an instant, we can contact you know, hundreds of people, dozens and hundreds of people in an instant. But that's not community. Connectedness is not community. It's not the same thing. And so there's this illusion that just because you have a lot of Facebook friends or just because a lot of people hear and like and comment and post uh, things that you might say on social media, don't live in that illusion that you are deeply connected. For the most part, uh, you might already be aware of this, the, the reality that there is a deep sense of disconnectedness in your own heart, meaning you don't have a place of belonging. There is this deep, gnawing feeling of loneliness that's there in the depth of your soul because we were not created just for connectivity. We were created for community. And, and to flourish well, we need to understand how uh, community plays into our life. So with that, I want to jump in now and begin to kind of ask the question, how did Jesus do this? Let's look to scripture, let Jesus begin to just kind of hopefully look at this with new eyes as to what Jesus called people to and how he called them to do this. So why don't you guys open your Bibles to the book of Matthew chapter 4. We're going to be looking at a a lot of passages in Matthew. Matthew chapter 4. We'll skip ahead to Matthew chapter 9. So you can turn there if you want. Put your finger there. Matthew chapter 10 we'll also be looking at. And then we will end that little section right there by looking at Acts chapter 2. So if you want to put your finger in all of those, that's fine. If you run out of fingers, and it's okay. I'll read it. Here we go. Acts chapter 4 verse 18 says this. Just listen to the story. 
While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew. Uh, they were fishers of men, or sorry, his brother. He says, casting it at into the sea, for they were fishermen. And then he, Jesus, said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets, and they followed him. And going on from there, uh, he saw two other brothers, Simon, or James, the son of uh, Zebedee, and his brother, uh, John, in the boat with Zebedee, their father. And they were both mending their nets, and then he called them, and immediately they also left the boat and their father, and they followed him. So what we have so far, Jesus in the story sees uh, two pairs or two sets of brothers. Um, They're obviously fishermen by trade. Jesus calls them, come follow me. They drop their nets, leave their father, leave the boat, the equivalent to if you have a vocation or a trade or you're going to school or whatever it is, and Jesus comes and he says, I want you to leave that and come follow me. Devote yourself, your ways, your ideas, your thoughts entirely to me, and I, I will train you. I will make you a fisher of men. And uh, so they, they drop their nets, they leave their father, they leave their boat, and they come follow Jesus, obviously, for a season. Obviously, for them, they had no idea the length and duration of how long it's going to be, but they follow Jesus nonetheless. So already, you have kind of like this nucleus of four. Four people, all connected. So these two brothers probably knew each other, and there they are with Jesus. Uh, Skip on ahead to Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. It says this, And then as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. So again, if you're reading this with first century eyes, you immediately stumbled in a section on your passage. Because you would have read that and been like, oh, Matthew, tax collector. Because that phrase tax collector in some ways uh, carries some similarities to modern day. Like if someone were to say, hey, a guy that works for the IRS is now following Jesus. Jesus walks in the IRS and says, come follow me. And the guy drops what he's doing, is following Jesus. So we tend to think about modern day tax collectors like, ah, they are the ones that are out for my money. And that's exactly what ancient tax collectors did. But there was another caveat to that that made them even more despicable. Because of who they worked for. They were workers of the Roman government. And because this guy, Matthew or Levi, uh, he was Jewish, working for the enemy. And his job was to collect money from good Jewish people. So this guy would have been viewed as an outcast, literally a traitor. Someone that would have been like a Benedict Arnold or somebody that would have just uh, done anything. He was in cahoots with the uh, Roman government and was making money off of his own flesh and blood. um, And it was all legal and legit. So this guy would have not been liked. And then just keep reading in the story. It goes on to say here that he rose and he followed him. Verse 10, it says, as Jesus reclined at a table in his house. So where did this whole story now move? It moves into his house. Jesus is sitting down in Matthew's house having food with Matthew. And he tells us, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and they were all reclining with Jesus and his disciples. So we're beginning to see that this, this party just got a little bit bigger. Jesus says, let's have a party. And let's have the party at your house. And Matthew's like, great, I'll bring over all my friends. Well, if you are a tax collector that's despised, living in the margins, who are your friends? Well, a bunch of other tax collectors, bottom feeders, who are living in the margins. That's who your friends are. You bring them all over. And so here they are. It's it's literally a party of tax collectors, bottom feeders, people that are uh, at the bottom end of the food chain. These are the people that are all in in this house with Jesus at the very center of it. Just pause and think about this. Isn't this amazing? These are the people that Jesus hangs out with. 
Like that, that alone should be like so cool to read that about the story of Jesus. And the story gets even more amazing because it goes on to describe in verse 11, it says, when the Pharisees saw this, this would have been the, uh, the religious people in a lot of cases in the story, uh, they're kind of uh, uptight and they're very concerned about um, appearances and cleanliness and certain cultural taboos that they wouldn't be broken. So obviously the Pharisees right now playing into the story are going to present sort of a negative tone, which is exactly what happens in verse 11. So when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But we heard, but when uh, he heard it, he said to those, uh, he said, those who are well have no need of physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but to call the sinners. So what we've learned so far is that Jesus, his whole thing, what he's creating, when he said last week, when we read this passage last week, I will build my church. How is Jesus doing this? Well, we're watching this right now. Like, that's what we're reading. If, you're, if you are into like architecture or this, Jesus is literally constructing, he's architecting his church. He's not using, you know, two by fours. He's not using gold-plated, you know, chairs or whatever. He's not creating a sound system. His church is a community of people that are made up of sinners. And he's calling them, come follow me. Drop your nets. Come be a part of what I'm doing. Join me in this thing. And by bringing these people to himself, they're also being brought into connection with each other. Following so far? So... Uh, Matthew, or I should say uh, Peter, James, John, Andrew, all these guys, they're probably in the context of here sitting down, probably very uncomfortable, sitting down, having a meal with Jesus in the company of tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus says, hey, this is what I came for. I came to help people that are, that are broken, that are in need, that are in the margins, that are despised, that are hated, I've come to rescue and save them. They're the ones that are in need of me. And then it goes on to say, skip forward to Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. And I'll summarize some thoughts with this and we'll move on. Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 through 4 says this. And he called to him his 12 disciples and he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast out and to heal disease of and every affliction. In verse 2 it says, the names of the 12 apostles were these. So, so far again, we learn that Jesus is in building this church will be building and constructing uh, people, bringing them together in this family. And these people he's going to describe as disciples or apostles. Um, these are the people that have followed Jesus. Don't, don't think too highly of the name. Just realize these are people that have been called out by Jesus. Jesus calls them to invite them to come follow him. And they come out and they're, they're forming this team, this community. Now, who are these people? Uh, Matthew goes on and tells us. Now, the names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who's called Peter. Andrew and his brother, uh, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. We read about those guys in Matthew 4. Verse 3, it says, uh, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew, the tax collector. We read about Matthew. James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus. And verse 4 says, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who gives us this little bit of information. He was the one that actually betrayed Jesus. So most of us were familiar with Judas, of course. Uh, but again, this list is pretty Amazing when you begin to think about some of the little details that are dropped in by the writer Matthew, no doubt led, orchestrated by the Holy Spirit. Uh, these details are really important. So here's a couple of the details 
just in case you miss it. Number one, we read about this guy, Matthew. Again, we just talked about him, that he would have been a betrayer of his own family, his own kin. Uh, He would have been working for the enemy. Uh, He would have been in the same context with this guy, Simon the Zealot. So again, we might be reading this and be like, Simon the Zealot, he's zealous. What's he zealous for? But again, that's not what the phrase in the original means. The word zealot or zealotes uh, is a way of describing what his role was and who he was within the context. In the first century, again, like I said, because the Jewish people were under Roman occupation, meaning they were a people that were oppressed. Under this heavy-handed, militaristic nation called Rome, there was a lot of Jewish people that were like, we hate this. We hate the Romans. We hate having to give taxes to people we don't like. We don't want to give our hard-earned money away to Caesar, who's going to go squander it and spend it on ways that we find not only distasteful, but disgusting, right? Sound a little bit familiar to maybe some of us, where we live, how we live today? You get the idea. It's not that far off from our world in which we live in today. But this group of people that said, we will not stand for it anymore. We love Israel. We are patriots of the nation of the people of Israel, and we will fight. And they were known as the zealots. These, another way of thinking about these is like Sicario. These would have been hitmen, all right? So Simon, Simon Zelotes uh, would have been literally a hitman in that in our modern context, we would maybe think of a guy like this as a terrorist. He was the guy that would put on a, a, a bombing vest that had explosives on it. He was the type of guy that would come out of the shadows and stab a Roman soldier and go back in the shadows. And it was, it was a terror act. He's sitting at a table with Matthew, the tax collector. You guys following so far? This is the community of people. Jesus, come together. Come follow me. So again... The scripture tells us no details about the type of dialogue that was going on. But you can begin to imagine. Do you think they had heated discussions? Do you think they talked about politics? I would imagine. I mean, Simon was like the, you know, alt-right, uber-nationalistic, uh, patriotic guy that drove around in a, an American-made car with a rifle in the back of his car. He was the guy that was willing to do anything he can to make sure that his nation would be fought for. And then you got Simon the Zealot. He's just like, ah, I don't really care too much about my nation. I just want to make money. And I'm just, I just care about it. And so that you, you would imagine the type of conflict that would be between these people. And here they are. Jesus says, come follow me. Be part of this new community of people that I'm forming around myself. And then you can keep reading in the story. There's a couple other names I'll just make honorable mention to, like Thomas. He would have been like the quiet, introspective, probably melancholy, cynical type of a guy. He's like, I don't even believe that Jesus rose again from the dead unless I can stick my finger into his hand. I don't believe any of this stuff. All right, he's the negative guy that is always, always bringing everybody else down. And then you got James and John. Uh, These guys are loud, obnoxious, boisterous. Jesus actually calls them. You guys are the sons of thunder. You guys are the guy. On one occasion, the guy says, Jesus, should we call down fire from heaven to kill people? Jesus is like, you guys are, you guys should listen to my sermon on the Sermon on the Mount. It's really good. You might grow from that. Like, it's the exact opposite of what you just asked for. But these guys would have been the loud, obnoxious, boisterous, community people. Then you got Peter who was loud and opinionated. He was always literally saying stuff and then thinking about it later. This is the community of people that Jesus brings together and says, follow me. They're not the same. So here's the thing. 
uh, jump forward, and I'll move on. Acts chapter 2, verse 42, that this community of people that are gathered around Jesus Christ, uh, fast forward a little bit, Jesus dies, rises again from the dead. He uh, brings his empowerment called the Holy Spirit into their lives. They are literally a brand new community formed around Jesus. And here they are in Acts chapter 2, verse 42 to 47. It says this, And this community of people, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and to the fellowship, and to the breaking of the bread, and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs uh, were performed by the apostles. And all the believers were together, and they had everything in common. They sold their property and their possession to give to anyone that was in need. And let's pause real quick and think about that. This is a community of, of people that, that formerly, they, some of them would have been enemies. Some of them would have been radically different in their personality types. Some of them would have been a very different in, their, in terms of politics and how they would have voted and whatnot if they did vote back in those days. But you get the idea. All of these people now formed around Jesus, they're selling their goods. They're giving away. So as they come together, they find out people have needs. Great, let's figure out a way to help you in those needs. This is a community. It's a radical community. We think about this. And it says in verse 45, it says they sold the property and possessions. They gave it to everyone that was in need. Verse 46, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts and they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. So we see two things about this community. Number one, uh, they met in large gathering, which was uh, in the temple court. So think large gathering, large group, kind of like what we do here on a Sunday morning. And also imagine or think about them gathering together in smaller groups, smaller gatherings in people's houses. So what we like to point out as a church community is that we like to do both. Not just Sunday mornings, though Sunday mornings is an important part of what we do. It's not the only thing that we do. We do Sunday mornings because they gather in large gatherings. And we do house to house, smaller gatherings, in someone's home, over food, over maybe singing, over reading scripture, over getting together in smaller, more intimate gatherings. We call these community groups. And I'll talk more about that in just a second here. So what we would basically point out is verse 47 and kind of summary of this. It says, they were praising God, enjoying the favor of all the people, and the Lord added to their number daily those that were being saved. This was an amazing work of God. Holy Spirit was moving and working and transforming and shaping people's hearts. So there was radical generosity, radical love. Now, there's a tendency, I think, for us to idealize the first century church and think, oh my goodness, if we can just get back to first century Christianity, the church would be so much better. The problem with that statement is that we tend to overlook the fact that the first century church had all sorts of problems as well. They're problematic people, just like there are in our church. There are people that are on fire, if you want to put it that way, for Jesus, and there are those that were deceptive in the context of that community. So be careful on how you idealize that, not only the first century church, but any church. So this leads me to one final thought, and I want to move on before we do this, is I actually had written some stuff out when I was thinking about this, because I think this plays into our overall experience of how we tend to think about and what type of expectations we put either upon the first century church or any community, any church, all right, whether you go to Mountain Brook or Grace or Calvary Slow, wherever church you go to, that there's a tendency to idealize some community of people, whether it be first century church, we idealize this. And I think it goes something like this. So I wrote this down. Growing from an idealized form of community to a more realistic or Jesus-shaped understanding of community is an important thing. I didn't write that on but I want you to think about this. And I uh, had written down uh, the idealized way, which we oftentimes... Uh, have as a framework in our mind when we move into a church or any church for that matter. And I would even add that this actually applies to relationships too. 
So if you're married or thinking about getting married or have a roommate or thinking about getting a roommate or it also applies to jobs, all right? So this applies to church, relationships, and, and your job. So ready? Here we go. Number one, I think there is a, there's, a, there's a progress or progression that begins with idealization, Okay, so what this looks like in a very, in the context of a church, we initially see this church as a community of, of like heroes and saints, um, or at least exceptional individuals. Like, they're amazing. They love Jesus. And what a great community. They're on fire for God. They're doing great things in the community. So we idealize this. We, we, we do this with relationships. We do this with jobs. Like, oh my gosh, if I can just get a job at Twitter, that'd be the most amazing place to work. Like, like, and then you get into that company, and you're six months in, you're three months in, you're three years in, I should say, and then you begin to like, I don't know, that leads to the second one, which is realization. You begin to realize some things. You begin to realize that it's not all awesome. It's not all great. Like, like there's actually people there, and people are frustrating, and sometimes there are things that necessarily you are bumping up against that are not as awesome or as exciting as you thought. So that realization then leads to what I would describe as the third thing, which is disen, uh, disenchantment, which meaning that idealized thought of like, ah, this is awesome, Real, leads to realization. Now you're like, ah, I don't know. I'm not sure I'm too soaked on this church or these people or these roommates or this job or this marriage, God forbid. And uh, you start going through this kind of disenchantment, which then leads, I think, to the uh, next one, which is disengagement. Disengagement is basically the exact opposite of engagement, obviously. It's like looking at something and be like, I'm going to stand back. I don't want to be involved. I'm going to step into the margins, step into the sideline because I'm, 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 I'm frustrated with this. It's not what I exactly wanted or I'd hoped for. I had these expectations that everyone is just going to forever and ever and ever be superheroes and uh, amazing people to be around. But, again, you came into realization of some things, and that leads ultimately to departure. Like, like you want to know how divorce happens? This is it. Follow it. This is, I guarantee you, this is literally, this is literally the, uh, 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 the recipe for how divorce and all these types of things happens. It's, it always goes through this process, always. And always goes through the process in our lives in other contexts as well. So what I would suggest that I think what Jesus is actually calling us to is something different. Something different. Now, the way I would describe it would be like this. Idealization, obviously, we have this idealized sense. I don't know if there's any way to completely overcome that because what, what makes us uh, have decisions to, you know, uh, go to one church instead of another or join a job over another job? We kind of weigh in the balances, you know, checks and balances, things that uh, the, the benefits, the benefits outweigh the sacrifices. And we tend to go through this process. So we, I, we are always going to idealize something. And so then it leads to realization. Again, we realize oh, the church is kind of messed up, or these people are messed up, or roommates messed up. And then it leads to disenfranch- or, uh, disenchantment. And then I would suggest from this point forward, rather than going down this other path that leads to disengagement and then ultimately departure, um, to stop at that moment to rethink of it this way. Now, let me just pause real quick and say this. If you're in a relationship or a church or whatever, and because if, if the realization that you are coming to grips with actually has to do with um, abuse or it's a toxic environment and it's toxic because there is like sinful activities that are being allowed to be unleashed upon the people and it creates this really destructive scenario that I would say definitely uh, disengage and leave, like run. But before you make those decisions, my encouragement always is to get a third party in 
ask their input, their wisdom, someone that loves Jesus, someone that has a lot of wisdom, and begin to get their input in terms of understanding, better understanding this. But if it's just a preferential thing, like, ah, I don't know, the, 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 the idealism has worn off because everything's not going the way I want it to be. Then you got, you got something you got to think through these things. Because again, the object, the purpose of coming close to Jesus, which in turn means coming close to people, is to become more like Jesus. That's where discipleship happens. Then we put it another way. You are transformed. You are made like Jesus in the middle of the conflict. Let me put it another way. You are made like Jesus in the middle of the messiness of the lives of the people that are in process becoming disciples of Jesus as well. Does that make sense? This is not popular, is it? You guys awake? You guys doing good? Okay, both of you. Awesome. So we'll keep going. So what I would suggest the last two things is, number one, uh, Holy Spirit breathe reimagination. And this is what I would suggest with this is to go to God. Ask God, God, give me a fresh vision for how maybe you want to use me in this context. Give me fresh energy. Give me new ability to see people in the same light that you see people. These people that have let me down, these people that have hurt me, these people that have caused offense, these people, again, uh, that I've, I've seen some things. Again, um, sometimes it's a toxic scenario, so you gotta, you got to run. That's fine. I get that. But ask God, God, is there something in this situation that you want to help me to reimagine a fresh empowerment upon me to be able to keep moving forward? And then finally, a renewed commitment. So what I would encourage is to really think about how God may want to help you to reimagine and then recommit in a fresh new way. Uh, because look, people a lot of times, Christians, uh, the overwhelming majority of committed Christians are committed to spiritual growth. But the fact of the matter is, is that the overwhelming majority of Christians are also committed to spiritual growth in the context of solo life. And we're always becoming disenchanted. That's a pattern that we often have. So what happens is we bounce around. We jump around. And there's this disconnect between, I really want to grow with Jesus, but I don't really know how to do it. And I would suggest this. The way that you're going to grow is by planting yourself. You cannot grow if you're constantly uprooting your life. Plant yourself. Realize the soil in which maybe God, this is where I always encourage people, at the very end of the day, ask God, God, is this where you want me to be? Is this where you want me to grow? And you've got to maybe reassess that every once in a while. But also, don't just simply reassess it when it gets tough. Because I'll tell you what, Calvary's slow. We will let you down. You're welcome. You be part of this church for any length of time. You begin to realize we're human beings. We have idiosyncrasies. We have things that we maybe don't move on as fast as maybe others might. Maybe think that it should be moved on. Whatever the case is. But we will let you down. And that will lead to this sense of like realization, which might lead to disenchantment or uh, detachment, and then ultimately just, you know, removal. So the point that I would make with regard to that is just be aware of that, if anything. Be aware of how these things oftentimes can maybe play out in your life. Let's move on. So let's ask the question, how is community cultivated or make some assessments on this? I'm going to go through this really quickly and then wrap this up. How is community cultivated? First of all, I would just say community is extremely fragile. It doesn't just simply happen. You have to work hard at it. Did you know that? 
Um, like, let me, let me put it this way. Um, I think there's a tendency, especially for unmarried people, to idealize marriage. Like, if I can just get married, then life's going to be amazing, and sex is going to be incredible, and all this deep loneliness that's in my heart, I'm constantly feeling just going to evaporate and go away, and life's just going to be this endless relationship of, like, bliss. Um, I, I, honestly, I, don't, I hate to be, like, the, the, the bad guy in the room to... Uh, awaken our souls to the reality. It's, it's not like that. It really is not like that. If you are looking to uh, this connectedness in marriage to, to bring the end or the cessation of loneliness, then I would suggest you're actually looking at something that, was, that cannot sustain the weightiness of your expectations. There's only one that can. Jesus. It will let you down. That person that you are putting your hopes in to somehow carry all your loneliness, at some point they're going to they're gonna fail you. And when they fail, then you'll get disenchanted with that. So what I would suggest is this, is that community in every form is very fragile. We've got to work hard at it. We've got to engage with it entirely. We've got to completely commit to it. And then in the midst of that, we have to realize that there's some things that we have to at least have in our minds as to how this works. So I'm going to go through these really quickly. You can write down the verses, read on your own. I'll go through them fast. Number one, it involves a common understanding of truth. What John would say is that, uh, that we walk in the light, that Jesus is the one with whom we have fellowship with. So first and foremost, that Jesus has to be the very center of, of how we do this. Um, are there other important teachings that are part of the corpus of Christian doctrine and ideas? Of course. But here's oftentimes what can happen. Um, Christians are notorious, especially young male Christians. All right, just called you out, young male Christians. Is There's a tendency for young male Christians. I know this because I was, I, w- I was that guy. There, there's a tendency to major in minors. There's a tendency to look at or focus on certain key biblical ideas and be like, this is the most important thing ever. And we'll fight for this. So let me ask you this. Have Christians, have churches split over the, 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 uh, the type of music that, that gets played? Why? Why does it happen? Well, someone's majoring in the minors. Somebody's like actually fighting over these things. And they're majoring in minors. Now again, are there preferences that we have? Of course, it's totally fine. But at the end of the day, Jesus has to be the thing that brings our hearts together. We can discuss all those other things, but do it in a way that's civil. So number, number one is a, a common understanding of truth. Number two, common practice of truth. And this is what John would say, First John, uh, walking in the light. Um, number one is love. Like he unpacks that in John, First John chapter 2. Uh, secondly is forgiveness. Continual, constant forgiveness. Learning how to not only say, I'm, I'm sorry, but also learning how to offer and extend forgiveness. I forgive you. That's painful. We would so much prefer to just leave a group than confront. And I would suggest that when we do that, when you do that, when we all are guilty of walking down that path, we actually circumvent growth that Jesus calls us to. Um, Thirdly, continual devotion and commitment. We see this sense of like deep committedness of the early church, Acts 2.42, I already read that, but this idea that they were deeply committed to one another, commitment is essential to your growth. Now again, I realize, in our culture, so on the one hand, we have this deep sense, even though we're more connected than we've ever had been before, we have this deep sense of loneliness, 
And because of the breakdown of so many institutions in our life, whether it be from marriage to, you know, government being completely inept to work through things, there's this tendency for us to have this deep sense of insecurity. So on one hand, we're looking for some level of security, and we're looking for some sense of belonging. Follow? So we feel this in our heart and our bones. But why don't we commit then? Yeah, I think it boils down to this, because we're always sizing each other up and sizing churches up and sizing other communities up, and we're like, are there other better options out there for me? So we're always like keeping this like open-ended thing where we're like, I'll commit until I find something better. But do you, do you realize that walking, by using that as sort, of, as sort of a paradigm in your life by which you live your life, do you realize uh, at some point you will find what looks like something better? Again, Go back to that disenchantment, idealized type framework that I painted for you. Um, so here's the point. Community is fragile, and it takes a lot to cultivate. And these are the ways in which we see this. And so one thing I would just say with regard to this, at the end of the day, this is, by definition, what God did for you. God comes in, and this is just simply say, have warm, fuzzy feelings about me. God says, no, this is about truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus comes and he says, listen, it's important for you to understand how to live. There's a moral obligation that's essential to how this universe works. And Jesus comes and literally embodies love and forgiveness and insane commitment. Do you understand what Christ, what Christ gave up relinquished, laid down. This is the story of the gospel. God comes into our world, not because he's obligated to. So the, the, the reality is, is one of the reasons why it's so challenging and difficult with regard to the context of the community, because people are constantly failing our expectations. They're, where they're constantly letting us down. And I would even say this, to the, the greater degree that you idealize a relationship or a church, the more you idealize that thing, the more it will let you down. Does that make sense? Follow that proportion? Imagine if God applied that same technique to us. I create humanity. I want humanity to walk in agreement with me, to love me, partner with me. We're going to create this incredible world. And Adam and Eve are like, no, thank you. They rebel. They reject God. God at that moment could have been like, I'm disenchanted with you. And I'm done with you. And I'm going to pull away from you, and I'm going to depart from you. I'm going to go to another sector of the universe and create a whole other set of beings that are way better than you guys, and then I'll just death star you all. <laughs> That's not what God does. Instead, he says, I will lovingly embrace you and forgive you and approach you and commit myself to you. This is what God does. If you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus, you understand it's because God drew near to you that your heart was changed. This is the narrative that God calls us to embody and to live into. So let me wrap this up. How do we seek to embody community here at Calvary Slow? Well, in short, uh, we have community groups, which are, which are places to come together, to grow to become more like Jesus in the context of those community groups. And so some of you um, have engaged and you've gotten connected and you've realized they're not, they're not easy. They're not easy. It's challenging. There are challenges to having to, to doing life with other people. Um, and, and yet it's, there's also life in the midst of that as well. 
And so what we're saying is that we see community as essential to your growth as a disciple of Jesus. Like, like it's essential. It's inseparable to your life as a disciple of Jesus. Now, what we would encourage you guys to do, number one, is that, you know, find a community group. Um, we are in the process of updating our website, so don't go to our website right now. At some point, we will have more of a robust list of our community groups that are on there. Right now, it's not the case. So you can contact Gunther. He's one of our pastors, and he will get you information and get you connected. Uh, or if you know somebody that's, like, involved in a community group, then ask them, hey, can I show up and be part of that? Um, secondly, if none of those work, or, I mean, if you are really, really just like, I don't like those people, like, and you're just like, you're already going to call it quits even before you jump in, then you can, you can start your own community group, but um, you're going to realize that those people are going to just be as challenging, because you realize that the problem might not be them. <laughs> sorry, sorry, I, I hate to break that to you. The problem may not be them. So there may be some things that God wants to grow you out of. And uh, you can only do that within the context of community. Um, so form a community. Um, if you want training, we're happy to walk with you to do the training. In fact, um, my encouragement to you as, a, as an action item is that immediately afterwards you can sign up for the training that we have coming up. It's in October. It's a three-week on Sunday morning, or we have a couple other makeup, uh, re- uh, um, um, what do you call it, trainings uh, in the evenings, uh, other nights. We'll, we'll give you all the information on those as well. So just sign up for that, and we'd be happy to get you trained. And then finally, what I want to do is I want to end on, so I would say, again, this is how we as a church seek to embody uh, this very important thing, which is we, we create space outside of our public gathering where people can come together for a meal, for studying scripture, of doing life together, of supporting one another, of carrying each other's burdens, of loving one another. And that's how we see us fulfilling and partnering with what God is up to in this world and now. So uh, lastly, I want to finish with a uh, testimony of community. So I'm going to have my good friend Christina Wong come on up. Where's she at? Yeah, here we go. Yes, yes, yes. So this is Christina. She's going to share with you guys a little bit about. Uh, so how did you, first of all, get involved at Calvary Slow and community and so on? Yeah, so um, through friendships. Um, I had established friendships in college um, that rolled into post-college. And during college, um, we were very different friends in the context of, like, I was a non-believer and they were believers. Um, But I was really drawn to them and just really deeply loved them as people and really respected their faith. Um, And post-college, I had everything that the world says you're supposed to have. I had met every expectation that I ever felt that I was supposed to meet, um, had a dream had my dream job, had a loving family, had an amazing community, and I lived in slow. Um, I got to stay. So, um, but I had all of those things, and I was still desperate and broken and just unfulfilled. Um, And in my brokenness, the friends and the relationships that I had in college and those friendships, those were the people that picked me up and that I went to when I was at my lowest. Um, And they brought me here. Actually, I asked her if I could come to church, um, which was just crazy because I never would have dreamed that I would have wanted to go to church or become a Christian. That was never part of my plan um, or vision for my life. And I did. Um, And I can say it was probably God, the Holy Spirit, whatever you want to call it. Um, And so I came to church. She brought me here. Um, I met some other amazing people, all of her friends. And those people came alongside me and walked with me and helped me create this community um, or have a community to be in um, and that's how I ended up at Calvary so this is my first church my home church um, and it's really amazing to be here
So you are, uh, you're leading community group now. How, yes. how, that, how did that happen? So you went yeah. from not being a Christian yes. to going to a small group, yes. to meeting Jesus, coming to church, yes. and then there's a process somewhere There was between. a very long process. <laughs> and uh, what, what are some of the benefits that you found in your own spiritual growth that could not have happened yeah. outside of community? Mm-hmm. Um, I think first... As I started engaging in the church um, and in a community group, the first time that I went to the Bible study, the women's Bible study that I went to, I left just kind of scared and just not ready. Um, there was topic, there was a heated discussion about abortion, and there was a prayer circle. Just like I didn't know, I had no context of what any of that meant, and it just felt really uncomfortable, and I just couldn't understand anything that was being said. So I took some time to myself. Um, to have some space before I engage in that. And those girls came around me, and I would call them and be like, hey, like, I don't really understand this. And just it happened in between life. So coffee shop dates, um, just meeting up, and they helped me just gain a foundation. Like, what is faith? What is prayer? These things that in Christianese we take for granted because it's just part of the culture. You just say it. You know it inherently. But for someone who's totally new, none of that made any sense. It's like you're talking a foreign language, and I was just like, way over my head. Um, so met with them, um, came to church. I literally cried like every Sunday I was here at church, but I couldn't really understand why. Um, but they just sat here with me. It was nice having people who I knew that I was vulnerable with, that I trusted in a place that was so unfamiliar and so kind of scary, if you will, like people worshiping and singing, like that was way outside of my realm of comfort zone. Um, and it would take me years until I felt comfortable just being able to sing to God and to open up. Um, so just having people in my life to be there. And now that I look back at those friendships and those people that knew me, they know my story. And so as I hit these trials in my walk with God, they were there. They knew my story. They knew where I was at. They knew what I struggled with. And so I could go to them and they already knew. I didn't have to explain over and over and over again about my story. Um, and the other cool thing that happens when you know people really well is that they can be a reflection for you when you can't see it yourself. Mm. So in times that I lost sight of who I was or what I was doing or just not being able to remember all the amazing things that God has done in my life, they were there to remind me of that. And you can't do that if you don't have a solid relationship with people or if you don't, if you don't open up to other people and allow yourself to be vulnerable with them, you're not going to experience that, and neither will they. Um, and so... Having this community group has been amazing. So I came back around probably three or four months later, started going. And now today, see, it's been maybe four or five years since I started going. And then about two years ago, I started leading the same community group that I had been to. And so it's really cool to see that full circle of just how they took the time to disciple me. And now I get to have the opportunity to disciple other women. So, so awesome. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, you can talk. What would you say to someone that's maybe sitting on the fence or thinking about jumping in or putting a big toe in the water and like, ah, I'm not really sure, I'm kind of frightened or scared yeah. of that. What would you say to someone like that? Yeah, and I, I like to address it from... Um, wherever you're at. So whether you're a Christian, non-Christian, if you've been in the faith but you're struggling, um, that just show up and just take a step of faith. 
um, and to show up because whether that's for you because you're seeking and you're wanting to grow um, or if it's that you know you are a little bit more mature and you have been given experiences and knowledge to be able to share with other people um, so maybe it's not showing up for yourself maybe it's showing up for someone else um, who can benefit from that relationship and I think when you show up you'll find that in giving you'll also receive mm. um, and when we struggle with whatever trials we're going through, whether it's like, I want a new job, or I don't know what I'm doing with my life, or whatever that is, as we go into community and as we seek God, he'll lay those things out for you. He'll show you. And it just comes sometimes in the most unexpected places. And so I would just encourage you to be bold and courageous or obedient, whatever word resonates with you, and to just seek where you're at. Where are you? What is kind of coming up as fears or anxieties or what's coming up for you that's preventing you from engaging with other people and just kind of sitting in those feelings a little bit and exploring that as to why you're feeling that way because there's probably something a little deeper that's there um, for you to kind of wrestle with and go through. That's awesome. Thank you. Thank Mm -hmm. you. You're awesome. Thank you. So we're going to finish. Why don't we all stand, and uh, we'll wrap this up. So as she was sharing, um, the thought that struck me with regard to this bigger thing is that if there's a desire in your heart that says, I want to grow and become more like Jesus, if, if the way that you maybe shift to the way that you think is that um, I want to help others to grow become more like Jesus, if that's your mentality, you're like, I'm going to help others grow and become like Jesus, do you, do you know that as you are helping others to become more like Jesus, you yourself will actually grow. Does that make sense? Um, so if, if you take it upon yourself to say, I want to help others really, truly figure out what it looks like to be a disciple, you will grow yourself in figuring out what it looks like to be a disciple. That's just how it works. It's the nature of God's kingdom.